Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Why are you here? I don't mean, why are you here at church today? But rather, why were you put here on this earth? It's a question that teenagers, philosophers, scholars, theologians, and average Joes have wrestled with for centuries. Do do you know the answer to the question? Do you know why you were born? This is at least in part what inspired theologian J.I. Packer to pen his beloved must-read classic called Knowing God. In the early chapters of his book, Packer writes, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life to know God? What is the best thing bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God. Packer's answer to the question is simply a summation of what the scriptures have taught for centuries. Now, I'm not saying Packer wasted his time writing the book. It's a, fa- it's a f- fantastic book, and it needed to be written, and God has used it for 50 years since it was originally published. But in the prayer we're going to be looking at today in Ephesians chapter 1, not only is the why am I here question answered, but Paul also lists the privileges that come with knowing God. We're continuing our series today called Chosen in the book of Ephesians. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. And while you're turning there or firing up your favorite Bible app, allow me to just review briefly uh, a few background items on the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is one of four letters that the Apostle Paul wrote during his first incarceration in Rome for preaching the gospel. Uh, the other three letters are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The Apostle had helped plant the church in the city of Ephesus during his second missionary journey around 53 A.D., He then left and then came back to Ephesus a year later in 54, and he stayed three, maybe four years, preaching and teaching and ministering to the people there. So it's now 60 to 61 AD. He's under house arrest in Rome, waiting 
for a hearing before Caesar, and he penned this letter to his beloved friends back in Ephesus. Now, if you missed week one of this series, I want to really encourage you to listen to it or watch it online so you can get brought up to speed on some of the other background information on the book and get context. It is on our podcast and on our website. Our theme verse for this series is Ephesians 1.4. It captures the theme of being chosen, which is a major theme in this letter. Uh, I want to encourage you to underline it or highlight it in your Bibles if you haven't done so already. But let's read it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Throughout this letter... Paul will remind us directly and indirectly that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were chosen for a purpose. You did not choose him. He chose you. Your position in Christ should then determine your purpose in life. Well, what's our purpose in life as Christ followers? Well, it is to glorify God in everything that we do. The apostle reinforces this main idea by how he structures his letter. Chapters 1 through 3 focus on the believer's position in Christ. Uh, Paul does so by unpacking all the blessings and privileges and benefits that come with having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 3 not only include all that Jesus has done for the believer, but also how the believer should think about Jesus and himself or herself. And so the apostle continues to build out our position in Christ in the second half of chapter 1 by explaining, and this is our big idea for today, he's going to explain how knowing God provides priceless spiritual privileges to the believer. Knowing God provides priceless spiritual privileges to the believer. The dictionary defines a privilege as a benefit, advantage, or favor granted to someone. In other words, a privilege is a benefit granted to a particular person or group of people who have met a certain prerequisite. They get something that everybody else does not get. For example, godly parents grant privileges to their children who complete their chores, get good grades, and demonstrate good behavior. Health clubs and country clubs grant entrance to members who meet their membership requirements and pay their dues. Nations grant certain privileges to their citizens that are not made available to non-citizens. The same is true for Christ followers. Christ followers have been blessed with blessings that unbelievers don't get. And now today we're going to see that Christ followers have been granted certain privileges that nobody else in the world gets as well. If you would look at the text with me, it's, uh, I'm going to start with verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Now, just a couple observations I want to point out to you in his introductory comments before his prayer. Uh, It's worth noting that in verses 15 to 23, this section we're going to be looking at today, it is the first of two prayers that Paul writes in this letter. The second prayer is in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, which I'm very much looking forward to studying with you in a few weeks. Also, similar to the first half of the chapter, verses 15 to 23 are one long sentence in the original text. So yes, the entire chapter is comprised of two sentences. And I'm guessing Paul was one of those kind of preachers that didn't like to use a clock when he was preaching either, or a watch. Now, notice the inspiration for Paul's prayer in, uh, is the Ephesians, and it's in verse 15, it's their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. Now, he's not commending their conversion here because they don't deserve credit or praise for that. They, they had very little, if anything, to do with that at all. They were chosen. But rather, he's praising the fact that they were living out their faith in Christ faithfully. It's this faithfulness that inspires Paul to give thanks for them in verse 16. And then after his thanksgiving, Paul begins to explain how he's been praying for them. So now look at verse 17 with me. He says, I've been remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Here's the first uh, point in your outline. Number one, it is Christ followers are granted the privilege of knowing the person of God. They're granted the privilege of knowing the person of God. Atheists claim that there is no God for us to know. Agnostics, on the other hand, claim that if there is a God, we cannot know him. Paul, though, is emphatically declaring here in this passage that not only does God exist, but he also sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins so that he could be known by us. The gospel message is what makes God knowable, accessible. Now, verse 17 contains a complex exegetical translation issue about which New Testament scholars are divided. I usually don't prefer to get into these technical issues on Sunday morning, because I know for it's pastors like me and theologians, Bible nerds, we, we get into this stuff and love to talk about it and all that. And I realize mere mortals such as yourselves, <laughs> you know, this, is not, this is not in your wheelhouse. It's not what you think about all day and all week, you know. Um, but I feel it's necessary in this case to clear up any confusion across the various Bible translations in this room. Here's the crux of the issue in verse 17. What does the Greek word for spirit, which is pneuma, what does it mean in the original text in verse 17? 
Is the Father of glory giving something, or is the Holy Spirit doing the giving? That's what scholars have been debating about for years. And here's how the issue uh, plays out. I'll, I'll show you the different translations here on the keynote screen behind me. Um, if you have the King James, the New King James, or the New American Standard Bible, you're going to see in, in verse 17, small s spirit of wisdom and revelation. If you have the ESV or the NIV, you're going to see capital S spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and revelation. And if you have the New English translation or the Net Bible or the New Living translation, you're going to see spiritual wisdom and revelation or insight. So, should there be a capital S spirit or a small s spirit? That's the debate. Now, this is one of those rare moments in which I am going to disagree with the very reputable and beloved ESV translation. In my humble opinion, I think the Net Bible and the New Living Translation get it more right. And I think the other guys are just less right. I wouldn't say they're wrong, but... Um, and here's why. Um, I think it's better to say, to render verse 17 as uh, the Lord giving a spiritual wisdom and revelation or insight. Because number one, it makes theological sense. Because according to Paul in verses 13 and 14, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, the Ephesians have already received the Holy Spirit at the point of their conversion. So it would contradict orthodox teaching to imply there's another spirit they need. Uh, there's only one Holy Spirit. There's no, there's no second baptism or anything like that that, that, that believers need. Uh, secondly, it makes grammatical sense because the first half of the verse, in verse 17, refers to God giving something that Paul requested God to give. And so it just makes more grammatical sense to say God giving spiritual wisdom and revelation. And then number three, it makes contextual sense. Because the purpose of Paul's first prayer request is that the readers would come to know the Lord better. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in the technical details, but I did want to address why some Bibles have a small s and some Bibles have a capital S, just in case you were comparing Bibles with each other. Does yours have a small s? Oh, mine has a big s. Wow. What's wrong with your Bible? I don't know. What's wrong with yours? So here's the, here's, the, here's the hope and encouragement in verse 17, though. The God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, has made himself knowable to humans. In addition to this, he's also provided spiritual wisdom and revelation for believers so we can continue to know him better and better, and better on this earth until we're with him face to face in eternity. So that's the hope and the encouragement, and that's, that's what Paul is praying, is that now that they know the Lord, that they would continue to get to know him better, just like some of you, when you became friends, you continued to peel off the layers of the onion and getting to know each other better and better. Or some of you, when you got married, 
you, you didn't know each other as well, but then you moved in together. Then you really got to know each other. So, next, let's look at verse 18, the next part of Paul's prayer. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the next privilege that Christ followers are granted is this. Number two, they're granted the privilege of knowing the heart of God. The heart of God. Paul writes, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. The, the word heart there is a, the word cardia in the Greek text. is where we get cardiac or cardiology from. It's the most common body part mentioned throughout the scriptures. It, it's often used interchangeably with soul. And it refers simply to the very seat of our emotions, our intellect, our uh, spiritual and intellectual being. Paul uses the perfect tense of the participle enlightened to say that his prayer is not that they would have a one-time event of insight into God, but instead the tense he uses, the perfect tense in the Greek, means he wants them to have a lifetime of learning more and more and more about the Lord. And so to break this down a little more for you, more specifically, the heart of God is revealed in at least two ways in, in verse 18. The first, uh, the first privilege in, in verse 18 that Paul wants us to see is hope. God gives hope to his children. Literally, Paul says, the hope to which he has called you. Hope in a general sense is the positive expectation that my current circumstances will improve. But in the scriptures, in the spiritual sense, hope is the expectation or the anticipation that God will do what he said he is going to do. And that he'll do it in the near future. This stands in stark contrast to how Paul describes unbelievers and describes the Ephesians before they got saved in chapter 2. It's there that Paul, and we'll get to this here in a couple of weeks, but in chapter 2, Paul reminds the Ephesians that they were at one time separated from Christ, without hope and without God. Someone once said, a person can live 70 days without food, nearly 10 days without water, and up to six minutes without air. But there's one thing it is impossible for humans to live without, and that is hope. They need hope. So what are we called to hope in? See, that's an important part of the verse when Paul says the hope to which he has called you. So I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago that uh, the definition of the word church, ecclesia, literally means called out ones. It's, it's the group of people that God has called out of the world into a special assembly called his church. Well, another example of calling out of the world is that God has called Christ followers 
out of a hopeless existence in the world into the church where they can be hope-filled. Where they can be different than unbelievers who have no hope, who have nothing to look forward to on the other side of the grave. So, what else does Paul have to say about this hope? Well, letter B, it's, uh, it's an inheritance. A, we get hope, and B, we get an inheritance, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Last week, or two weeks ago, excuse me, we learned in verse 11 that one of the many blessings that come with knowing Jesus Christ is the inheritance of eternal life. It's important to remember it's an inheritance because an inheritance is something owned by one person passed down to another person who did nothing to deserve it or earn it. And that's certainly the case with eternal life for repentant sinners. The owner in this case of heaven is God. It's his heaven. And he has invited and, and, and passed down to repentant believers the opportunity to inherit eternal life. They couldn't own it. They can't, they can't own it. They can't earn it. And they don't deserve it. We also learned in verse 14 a couple of weeks ago uh, that Paul... Paul said that God was so serious about his commitment to give the inheritance of eternal life that he sent the Holy Spirit to be a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing the inheritance that was to come. So now in verse 18, Paul is praying that we would not get too comfortable here on earth, but instead look forward to our inheritance of spending eternity with the Lord. That we would hope in that, as opposed to hoping for a better job, a bigger house, a healthier body. He says, no, hope in the inheritance, a glorious inheritance. There was once a Christian woman who had been very poor most of her life, and she unexpectedly inherited a large sum of money from a deceased uh, family member. Uh, the woman chose to purchase a beautiful house because she'd never had a nice house before. And so for a short time, she was able to enjoy her riches. But then a routine doctor visit revealed she had an incurable disease. Her friends were amazed that she was not disheartened at the prospect of losing the wealth and the house that she had just inherited, especially after living so much of her life without much at all. And so her friends asked her, they asked this godly woman, how, how can you be so cheerful about this? And she replied, oh, that's, that's easy. I'll be moving into an even better place when I die. She had her hope on her glorious inheritance, not in keeping a house that's just going to fade away or someone else is going to inherit after she dies. So knowing God provides priceless spiritual privileges to the believer. He didn't have to give them. He chose to give these privileges out of the generosity of his heart. 
Next, let's look at verses 19 to 23, the remaining verses of Paul's prayer. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far and above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's number three on your outline. Christ followers are granted the privilege of knowing the power of God. We're granted the privilege of knowing the power of God. Notice in verse 19, he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power. The word Paul uses in the original text for immeasurable means to transcend or to surpass or to exceed. It, it's, uh, it paints the word picture of, of like a, an athlete at a track meet that, that throws a javelin way beyond what the tape can measure or the shot put to where, to where they go. We don't even know how far it went because we don't have a tape that can measure that far. Some Bible translations render it unlimited power or incomparable or his incredible power. The point that Paul is making is that there is no metric capable of measuring God's power and no rival that even comes close to it. And this is difficult for our finite minds to understand because we're so used to living in a world that has measurements and limits. We have credit limits on our credit cards. We have, we have only so much room in the fuel tank of our vehicles. We have speed limits that we have to follow. We have limits of time, calendars that tell us when the day ends and when the day starts. We're used to living with limits, so it's hard for us as finite human beings to think about God's power being unlimited, infinite, untouchable, unmeasurable. But that's what it is. And so Paul, is part of his prayer here, he's, he's praying that we would be able to somehow start to just maybe grasp how great his power is. And so he then gives three demonstrations of God's unrivaled power. The Lord wants us to be comforted by his power over letter A, death. Uh, in, in verse 20... And that is the, I think, other than the creation account, I think the resurrection account is the uh, tied for first place as the best example of God's power. Paul says in verse 20, when he raised him from the dead. It means that when God resurrected his son on Easter morning, he showed the world that man's greatest enemy and greatest fear didn't even stand a chance against his power. Death didn't stand a chance. Christ's resurrection was also a preview of what the resurrection awaiting all believers will look like when the Lord returns. 
Haddon Robinson, uh, who served as the distinguished professor of preaching at Gordon-Conwell Seminary uh, before he passed. He once said this, For those who trust Jesus, death is not a sheriff dragging us off to court, but a servant ushering us into the presence of a loving Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Next, Paul gives another example of God's power, but it's, it's more of the uh, example of God's authority, his, his supervision power. Supervisory power might be a more grammatical way to say it. Verse, it's letter B on your outline, the universe. It talks about God's power over the universe. So in verse 21, Paul says that Jesus was seated. He was elevated and raised to the heavenly realms over all rule and authority and power and dominion. So this includes uh, your parents, your husband, your boss, the mayor, the governor, the president, Mother Nature, if she existed, the angels, Satan, his demons, aliens, if they exist, the Avengers, Thanos, and Darth Vader. <laughs> Jesus is over all of them. Did I leave anybody out? Can you tell I've been watching some Avenger movies recently? <laughs> also, in verse 21, Jesus' name has been raised above every name that is named. This means he's smarter than Elon Musk, wealthier than Bill Gates, stronger than Dwayne Johnson, and more influential than the Kardashians. Whoa. In fact, Jesus' name is so significant that when he returns, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's power. That's power. I think I've already mentioned before that we get a glimpse of that, that when, 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 when people uh, encountered Jesus or, the, or at least uh, maybe a, a visible manifestation of God, we see it uh, in the Old Testament when angels showed up, uh, humans would go, woof, they'd fall. Or Moses, when he was going to get a glimpse or he asked to get a glimpse of God's person in Exodus 33, God said, well, okay, but... If you really see me, you're going to die. So I'm going to have to hide you behind a rock, and then I will just pass by. But you can only see my back, because if not, you would die. And then, and then I'm always just blown away by the passage in John when, um, uh, when Judas leads the detachment of Roman soldiers to go and arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's something like four to 600 soldiers armed to the T. And then when they, they ask and they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus responds, I am he. It says all the soldiers fell to the ground. And I just, whenever I read that, I'm blown away by that. Just going, wow, I wish I could have been there to see that. Because here's one unarmed man and four to 600 armed soldiers who battle for a living and cut people up. And they were afraid of him. 
something when he said, I am he, something happened in the soul of those soldiers where they knew they were standing in the presence of God and that they needed to kneel. Now, I'm assuming as I continue to read the gospel account in John that they came to their senses and said, wait a minute, what are we doing? Let's get up. We got to arrest this guy. But to see that moment, oh, hopefully that got instant replay in heaven so I can see that. (laughs) Finally, Jesus has power over the church. That's letter C. Paul says that uh, Jesus was given as head over all things to the church. This means that nothing can happen in true churches that belong to him without him causing or permitting it. It also explains why after more than 2,000 years of opposition and persecution, the true church of Jesus Christ is still spreading. It has not been removed from the face of the earth. Nobody's been able to stop Christianity from spreading. And so knowing God provides priceless spiritual privileges to the believer. Well, here's a couple of applications that come to mind. The Lord may give you some others that relate specifically to you, but here's two that came to my mind as I was studying and praying over this passage this week that I hope will stimulate your thinking. Number one... I want to encourage you to view your earthly anxieties through the lens of your heavenly privileges. View your earthly anxieties through the lens of your heavenly privileges. If you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then all the privileges mentioned in this passage are Yours. In his book, Knowing God, that I referenced earlier, J.I. Packer insightfully writes this, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into their own place. In other words, because you know God through his son, Jesus Christ, allow me, allow me to connect some dots very direct, and I just want to be as clear as I can. Because you know God through his son, Jesus Christ, you have access to wisdom that prevents you from making the wrong decision. Because if you study his word, seek his face in prayer, and gather godly counsel... You, you can't make a wrong decision because you're using God's wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives it generously to all. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have a new hope that can get you through the darkest day or the longest night. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, Your light and momentary affliction is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If you know Jesus Christ, you've been granted a glorious inheritance, as we talked about earlier in verse 18. So there's no need to idolize money by spending more than you should, keeping more than you should, or sinning to get more. 
Because what you're going to get in heaven is exponentially greater than anything you try to keep here on earth. So this is how you apply your theology to your life. That's what I'm trying to give you examples here, okay? If you know Christ is your Savior, you have access to power over death, so there's no need to fear death anymore. You've been promised a resurrection. You have access to someone who rules the universe under his feet, so therefore nothing can happen to you anywhere in the universe that hasn't first passed through his toes. So that means if you got on a spaceship and you traveled a few light years out into the, into the universe and all of a sudden something bad happens to you, you can trust God allowed or permitted it or caused it to happen. Because he rules out there too. Just as Packer said, most of life's problems fall into place when you realize you were put here to know God. Number two, view your struggles and trials as God helping you to know him better. Did you know that? Did you know that the Lord permits or causes certain things to happen in your life to get you to press into him? The overarching message of the scriptures is clear that if left to our own devices, we do not choose God. This is one of the many reasons why God must choose people. But even after an individual receives Christ, their inherited sin nature still lives within them, making them, as one hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So even as the author of Psalm 119 wrote, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. So, so the author of Psalm 119 realizes he looked back on some difficult times, and it was good for me to go through those because I was wandering. And the affliction brought me back to God. Now, just to clarify, all suffering is the result of the fall. Therefore, all suffering is either directly or indirectly our fault, not God's fault. However, the Lord redeems suffering for good in our lives. And one way he does this is by making us more dependent on him and drawing us closer to him. So when we are crushed beneath the weight of suffering, then we are more likely to seek God's wisdom because we realize we have none of our own. Then we'll cry out to God like the psalmist did. For you, O Lord, are my hope and my trust. When we suffer, we'll strive to know better the one whom we'll be spending eternity with because of the glorious inheritance he's promised us. And when we suffer, we'll stop trying to overcome our trials with our own power and instead call out to the one who has the power over death to deliver us. So contrary to popular belief, the comfort of easy living that we wish God would give us here on earth is not good for us. It's not good for our soul. 
Suffering, however, is. Harry Ironside was a gifted preacher and author who served as pastor of the famed Moody Church in downtown Chicago in the early 20th century. Ironside once told the story of meeting a very godly man named Andrew Frazier early in his ministry. Mr. Frazier was dying of tuberculosis, and the young pastor, Ironside, had gone to visit him in the hospital, barely able to speak uh, because his lungs were filling up and he could only whisper. Frazier uh, said to the young Ironside, young man, are you trying to preach Christ? To which Ironside said, yes, I am. I, I want to preach the gospel. Frazier then said, well, sit down a little bit and let us talk about the word of God. And so this dying man, barely having the strength to lift his own Bible, unable to speak above a whisper, sitting at death's door, opened his Bible and spent a lengthy amount of time going through several truths in the scriptures that Ironside had never seen or had never appreciated before. Before long, tears were running down Ironside's cheeks, and he asked, where did you get these things? Can, can you tell me where I can find a book that would teach me these things that you just showed me? Did you learn these things in seminary or college? And his, his answer is, well, Mr. Frazier's answer is dumbfounding. He said this, my dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the word to my heart. The Lord taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries and colleges in the world. Interestingly, Ironside never went to college or seminary which is something he later regretted. And I just want to say as a caveat, I've always counseled young men considering ministry to go get theological training, formal theological training, if at all possible, go get it, because something's better than nothing there. However, there seems to be a myth amongst lay men and lay women that if you haven't gone to seminary, then you can't gain a greater knowledge and deeper relationship with the Lord. And nothing could be further from the truth. We've been blessed exponentially with more, with more resources exponentially in the 21st century than any other previous century of believers have had. So we can grow in our knowledge of the Lord. So the, the, the problem, in other words, just in case you missed it, it's not a lack of resources. So 
So why are you here? I don't mean why are you here at this church, but why were you put on this earth? I'll tell you why. It's to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? If so, do you know him better than you did last week or last month? Or last year. Because knowing God provides priceless spiritual privileges to the believer. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and his prayer for us is that our knowledge of God would grow and grow and grow so that we would know him better than we did last week or last month or last year. If you have questions about how to know God through a personal relationship with his son, I'm always available after the service to talk with you about that and to answer your questions. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.